Birding means adventure, and the American Birding Association and Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Tours are at it again. In July of 2019, we will explore Colombia, the ultimate paradise for birders with almost 2,000 species, including more hummingbird species than any other country. We're excited to gather again to see our friends while also raising important funds for the ABA's conservation and community initiatives. Pre-register now for what is certain to be an amazing time. Tanagers, parrots, ant pittas, and the ABA family await you a short flight away. Get more information at aba.org travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I wanted to start off this episode with a little bit of an update to the last episode. If you recall, I, I had Tiffany Kirsten on to talk about the current state of things regarding the proposed border wall in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas. I got a lot of great feedback from that episode. And I want to thank you all for that, first of all. But we tried to make that conversation as relevant and as up to date as possible with a disclaimer, obviously, that things are um, they are pretty fluid and liable, you know, maybe probably even likely to change. And well, things have changed a bit. Uh, and I wanted to share those updates with, again, the qualification that by the time that this episode is published on February 21st, uh, things might have changed once again. There is a lot going on. Uh, one thing that probably will not change, and, and certainly the most important thing to note, is that a bill to avoid another government shutdown was passed late last week and signed by the president. So it is it is official now. It contained about $1.3 billion for you know, border security, which does include fencing or a wall or a barrier or whatever they're calling it now. But it also includes some stipulations that that say that the money could not be used to build a wall at Benson, at Santa Ana, at the Butterfly Center, at La Lomita Mission, and in the section of the lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge east of Brownsville that notably is near a proposed SpaceX launch site. So that that is big. Um, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The additional money for a border wall elsewhere in the valley is frustrating, for sure. And as Tiffany said in our interview, uh, it's hard to tell what is a win and what is a loss sometimes. But just to be clear, saving Benson is a win. Um, I've sort of been sitting on this information for a little bit before I recorded this. Uh, this was a super important thing for us. I know it's really easy to focus on the money that was allocated but I, I think those of you out there who care deeply about these places and this issue are justified in feeling a little bit of joy uh, for, for the fact that these places were spared because you and the Valley residents who are on the ground, who are fighting for these places, made righteous noise to save them. And it worked. Uh, is it perfect? No, obviously not. Are we finished? No, Certainly not. In fact, reports have come from people in the Valley, including Tiffany, that clearing has begun at a section of Lower Rio Grande Valley National Wildlife Refuge just west of Benson. It's a tract called uh, La Parita Banco. That is not good, obviously. But man, if, if you would have told me two years ago, one year ago, that this is where we'd be, I, I don't know that I would have believed it. So I don't want you all to be so focused on the fight ahead of us that you can't appreciate where we've come. 
And just as an aside, the president has apparently signed a state of emergency to acquire additional funding for the border wall. It is unlikely he has the legal authority to do so. In any case, that is a wrinkle that is still being ironed out right now. Um, but that legislation that passed late last week spares these places. So this is this is the lesson that you should take away from this. Keep doing what you are doing because it's working. In March 2018, legislation passed that funded a border wall across all of Hidalgo County except for Santa Ana. And that was sort of the crack. And into that crack, we put the wedge of our efforts and started pushing. And now it's a little bit wider. Yes, $1.3 billion was allocated, but that can be fought. Um, you should know that eminent domain is not such a blunt instrument that it cannot be challenged. So, like, I am emboldened by this news. And I think you should be too. I am, I am inspired by the people on the ground in the valley who are doing this work. I am beyond happy for the birders and naturalists in the valley that these places are specifically spared. I think one of our advantages on this issue has been that we've been able to be very specific with what our aims are. So let's keep using that to our advantage. Let's keep widening the scale of what is important, what is important to the, the residents of that area, what is important to the ecotourists of that area and the naturalists of that area. And we can do that. But we also deserve a moment to feel happy about this before we dive back into the fight. Make sure you acknowledge that for your own sake. It is a marathon. Everyone needs a breather. So make sure you take one before you, you start running again. On the show today, another kind of marathon. Ted Floyd has been the editor of Birding Magazine for 100 issues now. He joins me to talk about where birding has been, where it's going. And by birding, I mean both the magazine and the avocation. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of February 2019. It was a fairly slow period for rarities, but for an early contender for ABA Area Rarity of the Year seen in Florida last week, a dark-billed cuckoo in Palm Beach County stuck around for several days where it was seen by many, many birders before disappearing. This is obviously a first for Florida, their second this month after the black-tailed gull we reported last time around. Though dark-billed cuckoo is not currently on the ABA checklist, this is probably more accurately the second record for the ABA area, because Texas had a record from February 1986, an individual that was found injured and taken to a rehabber where it subsequently died. That bird was not identified as a dark-billed cuckoo until later, and it was not accepted by the ABA checklist committee at the time because of questions about provenance, the sort of questions that always seem to get stuck on birds like this. Uh, but the fact that it was found in mid-February and this Florida bird was found in mid-February is a pretty good indication that there's something more interesting going on there. It's also more widely known now that some populations of dark-billed cuckoo are austral migrants. I think we sometimes we take for granted how much we know now versus how much we knew back in the mid-80s. Anyway, austral migrants, for listeners who might not know, is essentially South American birds that migrate north towards the tropics in the winter. Uh, they breed in the temperate regions of South America in the southern part of that continent. The most well-known austral migrant you might be aware of is probably fork-tailed flycatcher, which travels the wrong way often enough to be seen in a lot of places in the ABA area a few times every year. That is just a little bit of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period for the whole thing. Check out the ABA blog every Friday morning at blog.aba.org, or you can join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash birders. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert.
The February 2019 issue of Burning Magazine is the first of the ABA's 50th year, but it's notable for another, you know, perhaps quieter reason. It's the 100th issue helmed by editor Ted Floyd, who is no stranger to regular listeners of this podcast. He is with me here now to talk about his time as, as head of the ABA's flagship publication and how it's changed, along with how, how Burning has changed. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks for having me, Nate. So congrats on the uh, 100 issues. That's a, a pretty impressive accomplishment for a, a print magazine these days. Yeah, it's been quite a run. I appreciate you saying that. Does that make you the uh, the longest tenured member of the ABA staff? That's kind of tricky. Um, <laughs> I think Leanne Pilger right, uh, was okay. here before me. Wow. They have also taken some time off in between there. So it's uh, down to me and Leanne. That's and right. I also ought to note that... Uh, David Hartley has been here almost as long as I have. David Hartley yeah. was the one that I was wondering about. Um, yeah, I know no, he's I been around I, a while. I think it may be Leanne, actually. Uh, you guys are the unofficial historians of the ABA, the storytellers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so go, looking back to your first issue, which was uh, August of 2002, do you, do you remember that first issue, the, the cover and the content? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot there. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I believe it's a green kingfisher. All right. Uh, is, is that right? Or is I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm asking you, and I'm not. I don't have this. I don't have it in front yeah, of me. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember a, a green kingfisher on the cover. Mm -hmm. I hope I have that right. And uh, among other things, there was green kingfisher content in that uh, August 2002 issue of Birding. Wow. So when you first came onto the ABA, what was the what was the job of the the birding editor like? Who are you taking over for, and what was your sort of vision for the future of the publication? Looking back, yeah. So the uh, the editor or the outgoing editor at the time was was Paul Basich, who had uh, just guided the magazine through a period of you know I would say sort of rapid diversification. I think that uh, Paul really wanted to. Uh, not only send the magazine in a different direction, but sort of send it into multiple uh, directions. So uh, he had uh, his um, feet in various uh, tracks. Um, he still does. He's still around yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in the birding yeah, very world. Much so. uh, yeah. Conservation, I think, was a real emphasis for him. Um, uh, sort of education and outreach, certainly bird identification, bird biology, uh, and then also just the uh, the broader community of of birders. So I was sort of picking up that uh, mantle for the, for the magazine, but also, um, and I think this would be the case with with Paul Basich, and by the way, with, with his predecessors as well, as well, always looking uh, toward the future as well. I think that uh, birding, on the one hand, is sort of a a mouthpiece for the for the birding community, but I also think it's really important for the magazine to uh, to sort of guide and nudge and nurture the the whole community of birders forward. So you sort of implied that you know the purpose of the magazine back then was as as a mouthpiece. How has that changed over the the what is it? I'm doing the math in my head. Seventeen years, years yeah. that uh, that the that the that you've been at the helm. Honestly, if there's one thing that hasn't changed, it, it would be exactly that. I, I think that in, in 2002, as well as in 2019, and really going back to our uh, starting uh, year in you know, volume zero in 1968, volume one in 1969, it, it has been for the magazine to serve as and sort of a paradox, you know, both as, as a mouthpiece, so it reflects what the birding community is all about, but also, you know, a little bit of a, a goad, an inspiration, a, a nudge to uh, to always sort of uh, look one step farther along. So it's a uh, 
an interesting balancing act. You know, on the one hand, I really prize and value the uh, the contributions of the, the the members to our magazine, what we uh, on the inside refer to as authorial voice. It's really, really important for that to come through. Uh, on the other hand, we're not here simply just to uh, sort of reflect on the way things used to be. Uh, looking ahead to the future is such a big part of who we are. Yeah. How is how is the actual you know, physical job of an editor changed between 2002 and 2019? <laughs> now I can answer that question <laughs> in, a, in a, I think a, a more uh, sort of like exciting way. Uh, the, the magazine has changed just, just utterly and completely. Right? When, I, yeah. when, when I came on board, and this is sort of a behind the scenes nuts and, bolt, uh, nuts and bolts looks at, look at things, the, um, the production of the magazine was entirely based on uh, ink and paper. Um, the I won't bore the uh, the listeners with all the details here, but but thousands of of pages of of what we called manuscript at the time, and Lord knows how much ink uh, were expended yearly. We uh, had ungodly FedEx budgets moving uh, <laughs> packets of, of manuscripts back and forth. And yeah, I, I yeah. can't just get math off the top of my head here, but but certainly you know many hundreds, if not you know f- f- low four digits of, of sheets of paper involved in the production of a single issue of birding um and the uh the, the aba's fedex code is something that was ingrained in my mind at the time i, I <laughs> as well as my, my social security number or my phone number i have no idea what that number is right now and we may not even have a fedex account for all you know uh, that was very much the uh the era of uh of pen and paper and it's just not the case at all anymore now that's a uh, as i said sort of a behind the scenes look at the magazine i would also like to uh, be clear that the uh, i think the content and, and certainly the mode of delivery have changed as well mm. over the years yeah you know, 2002 I was uh in college uh that was when I you know I can recall that's when I had to walk down to the library to go to a computer I didn't have a personal computer and I'm not I'm not saying that to say like oh I'm so old because I'm really not that old <laughs> it's just that you know how much things have changed in that intervening period with how people interact with media how people consume media has been has been huge I mean that's it's as big as maybe the you know, development of the printing press in some ways. I mean, it's been it's been massive in the way people consume that stuff. The change, yeah. And I'll just going back to production. Um, we had a fairly strict limit on the uh, transmitting of files, uh, anything more than a, a megabyte, because most people <laughs> couldn't accept yeah. uh, files of, of right. that size. Uh, now, a, a single image is routinely more than a megabyte, uh, and and. But we can move whole magazines around um, electronically now. And, uh, yeah, that's just an example of how the, the, the production of the magazine and the delivery of the content are so different uh, between yeah. those two years. Has the, has the content itself changed? Uh, are you talking about more complex, for lack of a better word, issues in Birding Magazine? Well, um, there's that, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But I also just want to say that the content has changed in as much as there simply is brand new stuff out there now. So a typical issue of Birding in 2019 will talk on or talk about or at least touch on uh, apps and, and blogs. Well, they were non-existent uh, at the time. Um Think of birds like a uh, cackling goose and Pacific wren and right. Woodhouse's scrub jay. Well, we didn't write about those at the time because they hadn't been split yet. So certainly, there's simply new content uh, like that, and new content and, and, and new technologies. So that's a big part of the the change. There's just new stuff to write about. Uh, also, over the course of 17 years, uh, a brand new uh, group of people are going to come on board in the production of the magazine. Some of the most uh, senior people at the magazine right now. You said you were in college at the time, um, 
well, they were in diapers <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Uh, and some, some of the people who routinely contribute to the magazine now were, and maybe they weren't in diapers, but they were, they were toddlers. Or, not far so, off. Yeah, yeah <laughs> preschoolers at the time. So, uh, so new folks. And, and by the way, I don't just mean to say that they're sort of this, uh, you know, brat pack in charge of the, of the magazine. Uh, some of our more uh, seasoned contributors um, are, are also n- new in, in one way or another, bringing new perspectives, new, new ways of looking th- at things as well. So the, uh, the voice of the magazine has changed appreciably in the 17 years that I've been here. And, and that's been very gratifying to me. I'm sure that, you know, the diversity of authors, you mentioned the diversity of authors has, has changed a lot. And, and there have been a lot of young people. And I really, one of the things I really like about Birding Magazine is this idea that there's no, you know, sequestered area for what you might call, you know, young birder content. You know, essentially, young birder content is birder content. I mean, birders of all ages, be you 14, which is when I started reading Birding Magazine, mm. to, uh, to, you know, the people that have been around forever, for decades, who've been birding for almost that long, you know, that's stuff that is interesting to all of them. And uh, it doesn't matter who wrote it. Yeah, here's a little thought exercise for you in the, um, or for all of us, in the uh, the February issue of, of birding, which is uh, making its way to uh, ABA members right now. I, I think that if you were to somehow, and this is, again, just a thought experiment, sort of uh, hide or conceal or suppress the uh, the names of the authors, and of course, their pictures as well, because we have uh, the uh, pictures of the authors in each issue, I think a lot of readers would be hard-pressed to figure out who the the 19-year-old author is, and one of our features is by a, a 19-year-old in, in this issue, versus who the, well, I don't want to date, date some of our older <laughs> contributors, but who the folks who, you know, older are than over, 19, the half, right. over the half-century mark are. Yeah. Um, I, it's it's really, as I said, I, I used the word gratifying earlier, but how, yeah, I think that the, the content by the uh, the 19-year-old is very uh, authoritative, uh, and that's great. And, and the content by the, uh, let's just say, more um, Seasoned, yeah. <laughs> seasoned uh, uh, contributors is uh, it, it, it's fun and it's it's lively and it's it's animated and uh, it's really great to me that we have that sort of uh, just uh, really uh, strong intergenerational tradition at Birding Magazine. Yeah, seventeen years is a long time for anyone to do one thing. Um, have you changed in the period between two thousand two and two thousand nineteen, and how has that influenced how you approach uh, editing Birding Magazine? Yeah, uh, I've changed in, in large part, I think, because there are just so many new ways of, of doing birding now. Again, if we turn the clock back to, to 2002, there there was no eBird, which is unfathomable to me. It really I, is. I, I, I yeah. can't imagine birding without without eBird. Um, I think, as, as you all, as you know, and as probably many of the listeners know, I'm an enthusiast about uh, making recordings of bird sounds, but that's new to me because it wasn't really possible given my uh, budget and sort of general technological uh, incompetence at the time. But now it's really uh, quite uh, possible to do that. I, I, I take pictures of birds now because of the digital photography revolution. I, I just would have had no patience at all for film, uh, which, by the way, was the dominant <laughs> mode of, of, of bird photography so in, yeah. back in 2002. So digital photography, the, the, the bird song revolution, uh, eBird, uh, social media is is a big deal for sure. Um, you know, a somewhat more specialized resource than eBird is Xenocanto, but it had not come on line at all yet. So these things have greatly affected the way that I bird. Also, I think the, um, 
and this is a very sort of uh, sort of happy and uh, and sort of just a beneficial aspect of, of being involved in the birding community, that the growth of the community and the diversity of the community, I think by and large, I find myself interacting with a broader swath of uh, society than I ever did before. Um, I don't want to just say it's all beginners and newbies. That's that's not fair. I just think it's a, it's a, a, a broader engagement of the natural world. And that's really uh, rubbed off on me mm-hmm. as well. I've always had, you know, just sort of a lifelong interest in astronomy and insects and so forth. But I think that it's really a um, amplified for me over the past decade or so. So Birding Magazine has always been a place for photographers and bird artists to kind of showcase their work. Um, we kind of talked about this a little bit uh, last year when we talked about uh, we had a conversation with, that included Greg Neese about uh, about how photography has changed birding. Um, let's let's kind of jump in that again. Do you think that there has been a change in how how Birding Magazine has used photos over the years? Well, we certainly use them for the same ultimate point of you know il- illustrating, amplifying, and you know I would hope sort of enhancing and improving the the, the reading experience. So 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 birding uh, was then and still is a a multimedia experience. The the images are, are very very important. I do think there's been a change in sort of the type of image that we. Uh, emphasize in birding, and that would be maybe more the, uh, the maybe there's more realism for want of a better word, sort of a, a feeling of being in the moment. You can get really glorious photos now, practically by accident, and and and, and now by the way, I totally appreciate that really good photography. Yeah, uh, two photographers in the next issue are uh, you know uh, Glenn Bartley and, and Mari Reed, and you know they spend hours, days, sometimes weeks, you know, staging the perfect photo. And, and I really respect that. And I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity to showcase their photos. But both of those photographers and then good, good sort of case studies there are also uh, really adept at just sort of seeing or sensing, you know, something that's just happening right now. And that ability just to really capture reality as it happens, I think is fairly new. I, I know that there were dramatic photos all throughout the 20th century, even the 19th century, but that sort of staged Ansel Adams look to a photo, I think is something that is passing us by. And there's more of an emphasis on really what's happening out there in real time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you that uh, all of my best photos are taken by accident. So <laughs> but that's because I'm a, bit of, I'm a bad photographer. <laughs> I was going to say my, my good <laughs> photos, which don't exist as well as my bad photos, yeah, which right. by accident. <laughs> so yeah, no, but, but, but on the subject of, you know, and jokingly here, be, be, being a bad photographer, it, it is uh, really remarkable to me to look at uh, the, the images that I'm acquiring with a, you know, fairly average camera and with no photographic or artistic ability at all. I've, I just this morning, I was putting together a, um, presentation, uh, the, the, the slides, I'm using an old fashioned word there, the, the PowerPoint right. for, for a presentation I'm giving and, you know, based mainly on my own photographs. And there's kind of this pinch me, I'm dreaming mode. Like, really, I took that picture with that camera and, and, and this, you know, sort of innate level of inability. And, uh, it's, <laughs> it's really remarkable to me that so many of us can take some pretty good photos now. Yeah. It just means that, you know, the people who are really good at photos are able to take advantage of those situations much, much better and get, as you mentioned, you know, super, super amazing photos. Um, what about artists have you 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 obviously work with more artists than you have uh, than you probably used to 17 years ago or or do you you know how do you have a preference for photos or or for for art I, I don't I think they both serve their their purpose I would say that uh, art by the way can be conceived very broadly the 
February. Uh, yeah, the fe- February issue of Burning. Sorry, I, my mind is always several months ahead of production. <laughs> wise, but the, yeah. the, the, the cover of the February issue uh, of Burning uh, features art that most of our listeners have seen already. And that's the digital art of um, Megan Massa, who has created a, a, a stunning uh, portrait and sort of composite of, of birders looking at red-billed tropic birds, the, mm-hmm. uh, the ABA bird of the year. And the technique that she uses, it's it's called digital art, but that doesn't really do, do justice to it. Again, did not exist in 2002. Right. I had to sort of extract from her what exactly this entails, and she's uh, done a, a really neat self-portrait uh, of her creating digital art in the February issue of Burning that appears with a uh, an interview with with the artist uh, in in there. So that's an example of a a new art form. Um, this digital art looks for all the world like <laughs> like like watercolor brush on or, brush on paper, yeah, brush on canvas, yeah. But it's not at all. It, you yeah. know, it, it's stylus on type pad, and uh, it's really exciting to see that type of of art there um i also mentioned good old-fashioned 20th even 19th 18th 17th century art form which is the uh, the cartoon and I'm, I'm glad that we have been featuring cartoons a bit more of late sally ingram has done some really nice uh, cartoon work for us and just in case anybody thinks that a cartoon is silly or flippant or, 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 or light or not serious her cartoon work has really importantly contributed to some of our most serious commentaries in birding we had a piece by jeff manker on a very serious topic which was sort of how the heck you engage uh, teenagers in in big city um, uh, urban uh, high schools and again great, great writing don't get me wrong but we really needed the graphical support from our cartoonist uh, Sally Ingram in that mm-hmm. one as well what, what has been your uh, proudest achievement for the magazine over the years that you've been there well I, you know, I, I guess I could point to a particular article or even you know, a photo mm-hmm. or or artwork that I really like, but I, I think I'll maybe actually sort of dip back into something you and I touched on right. earlier, which is this whole matter of uh, authorial voice, the, the the community of contributors. We have a few freelancers, we have a few regulars, but, but by and large, we just have uh, members of the ABA contributing their content to the magazine. And that diversity, you know, I've talked about the youth movement, but you know, I want to be careful saying that because I, I, I by the youth movement, I sort of just mean sort of a, a youthful engagement of the subject matter. If I can sort of be quantitative about it, I'll, I'll say the following. When I, when I came on board in 2002, I was really the, uh, the young kid at, at Birding Magazine and you know, <laughs> more or less at the ABA. Yeah, you're laughing. It's yeah. hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, right. But I, there were staffers who were more than twice my age at the, at the time at, at ABA. Uh, now I'm sort of the, the old man here. Uh, in part, that's because 17 years have elapsed, but also because we really have done a, a great job. And this is not just me. I think it's really been a, a group effort here at engaging youngsters. Um, our two Associate editors uh, Noah Stricker and Ioana Saraton, both you know very prominent in, in their own right, uh, both came on board as teenagers, um, and not because of some you know youth tokenism on my part or anything like that, because they're just really really good editors. It's exciting that over the years we've had uh, major contributions from people like uh, Tom Johnson, Cameron Cox, uh, now Nick Miner, uh, all people who, um, despite their relative youth, I think they're younger than you are. They're certainly a lot younger than I am. Right, right. Um, have contributed really importantly to the magazine. And again, that's not to uh, to, to tokenize them or to, denig- to denigrate them. Um, I, I would say that anybody would look at Nick Miner's uh, material in news. And, actually, we, I have to be careful. News and Notes isn't News and Notes anymore. We're now calling it Frontiers in Ornithology. Okay. But if you didn't know Nick's age, I think you would um, you would double it uh, yeah. and, and imagine he has that right. sort of le- level of um, just sort of um, uh, experience and, and accumulated wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting considering that um, 
the person who also works with him doing a Frontiers of Ornithology, Paul Hess, has been around for so long. He's such a uh, a longstanding member of the ornithological community, and and to have him working with Nick is is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's okay for me to say this. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it's okay for me to say this. Paul is about a four times older than Nick <laughs> Miner. So yeah, just just yeah. do the math there. There, right, aren't right, too right. Many, there aren't too many possibilities yeah. uh, right there. But the uh, the sort of the synchronicity uh, between the two of them. And by the way, I, I really ought to put myself in here too. The synchronicity among the three of us. And I'm pretty much right in, right. in the uh, <laughs> on the, ge- the arithmetic mean of their ages. So now we can really sort of figure out how old they are or how young they are. But um, I, I just really like how Paul, despite his advanced age, is just always looking for new ideas. This, this idea, for example, of changing the name of the column uh, originated with Paul. And uh, the, the the material that he covers is never more than six or eight months old. Uh, Paul has always been a uh, just sort of a an exemplar for me about staying current. Uh, somebody his age, I think, would be excused for maybe uh, <laughs> reliving the literature from the 1970s and 1980s. But if I have a question about a, a research result that's only five or six or seven months old, I go straight to Paul Hess. He's really on top of it. And everything I said, by the way, really applies to Nick Miner mm-hmm. as well. Just really uh, great how the uh, the three of us uh, are so, um, I don't know, just uh, perfectly synchronized in the production of that column and the vision that we have for it. Yeah, it's always been one of my favorite columns in Birding Magazine, and it is really uh, remarkable how the, the the voice of Paul uh, has very seamlessly morphed into into Nick's voice. That's a, that's a testament to all three of you. Yep, thank you. Have you ever have you ever made mistakes? In Birding Magazine, do you have a biggest blunder? <laughs> of course not. No, I'm <laughs> no, no, perfect, perfect for seventeen <laughs> years. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I do have one story that uh, at least old timers probably will remember, but it's a it's worth retelling even for somebody who who knows it. So. Um, you know, on the one hand, and I say this um, sort of uh, with a twinkle in my eye, but also sort of with a little bit of seriousness as well, we do aspire to a, a near perfect product here. Um, people like Joanna and, and and Noah have almost this sort of like a just supernatural ability to find the smallest, not even, not even a typo, we call them orthos. So like a oh, just a little mistake in the weighting of a character or something like that. But anyhow, um, a couple of years into my um, tenure here at Birding, I got a, uh, an email from a member, uh, and out of the blue, I don't remember who the person was, but the, the email said, well, that was pretty funny. When are you going to spill the beans? And I didn't know where we were going with this at all, and, and I wrote back and said, I'm not really sure what you're getting at. He, he had identified the issue of birding. It was the um, – got it in front of me here. It's the August 2004 birding, and he said, well, when are you going to tell everybody that you um, published the cover upside down? <laughs> And I thought, well, what are you talking about? Shame it wasn't the April 2004 <laughs> issue. <laughs> well, you know, good enough. <laughs> and um, you know, I took a look at the cover and thought, well, you know, what is what is he talking about? There's nothing wrong with this cover. But I turned it upside down, which I'm doing right now, and I realized that actually it looked better upside down. So we actually have that cover of birding upside down. Now, you have to see it to believe it. It's a flock of uh, grackles, and grackles upside down actually look kind of plausibly like birds flying right side up. It's they sort of look that, like ducks, actually. It's like weird. <laughs> yeah, it's also that, that so-called keel-shaped tail. Right. Which is, it's held in a funny way yeah. in flight. But nobody had noticed this. Now, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here except for myself, but just every single person in the production process, every single person peripheral to the pr- production process, and all of our members for at least after a good several weeks after this had come out had not noticed it. So that is <laughs> the birding is upside down. 
and I, I thought for a, a, a moment that maybe just a, a few of the um, a, a small part of the the print, the print run was upside down, but the entire print run is upside down. So you know, uh, if you find a uh, or like a uh, a coin with two heads or something, it's right, incredible. Right. You bought it. Yeah, I'd love to imagine that the uh, this August. Is, do I have that right again? Yeah, the August 2004 issue of Birding is some collector's edition. But, <laughs> it's like that stamp, the the famous stamp with the airplane upside down. But for anybody who keeps old issues of Birding, go look at August 2004. So that's what just about 15 years ago. A little less than 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Turn the cover upside, yeah, yeah, turn the cover upside down and you'll realize that we had it wrong the whole time. So That's wild. I, I don't think we've made a bigger blunder uh, than that. Um, again, that's a tribute to just how many people do really great work behind the scenes trying to um, – just you know, ferret out every little typo or, or, or ortho. Um, we're also, I think, you know, very sensitive, for want of a better word, to the uh, sort of the aspirations and um, and interests of the reader as well. And uh, we we actually test a lot of stuff on on readers. If mm-hmm. Ioana Seraton's really good at this too. If 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 we feel there's just something that doesn't read quite the right way or might be rubbing something the wrong way, we'll usually circulate it in house and even out of house to make sure we're sort of saying it the right way. But all that said, we still managed to publish a cover of Birding upside down. <laughs> so one of the cool things about um, about Birding Magazine is that it, it is very much a, a membership member-driven magazine. All the articles are, are written by members. Oh, but by, not, sorry, not, not all the Many articles. of the articles. Many, many of the articles, yeah. yep. yep. Um, are written by members. Um, do you have any advice for people who might be interested in publishing in Birding Magazine? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I sure do. <laughs> I, have, I, I have two overarching pieces of advice, and, and they're kind of uh, opposed to each other, but I, I want to state both of them. Um, so the first is, and maybe this comes from having um, middle schoolers in my family and even being a volunteer teacher at the local middle school here, uh, is to please, please just follow directions. And I just mean at a very <laughs> basic level. It just astounds me when I receive a beautifully written article without the author's name or email on it. And, and that's actually not uncommon at all. Uh, if you don't have um, much familiarity with the magazine, just check us out online. Mm-hmm. Many uh, recent, um, in fact, even current uh, articles uh, quickly find their way onto the internet. Just you know, basically familiarize yourself with the uh, the style of, of writing in birding and, you know, definitely put your name and email address or, or Twitter handle or however you want to be reached out to that it doesn't matter to me uh, on the, uh, the article that you're submitting. So just you observe sort of common practices that uh, our own kids certainly know about, but somehow um, fall through as we get a little bit older. Um, the second point of advice is, is quite different from the first and it's, it's much more big picture. I would say that, um, Maybe my gold standard for acceptance, and, and I shouldn't say mine, this refers to the, everybody on staff here, is an article that teaches us something new, that uh, opens our horizons, that encourages us uh, to think in a new way. It could be something as simple as a, a new fact. Uh, some articles in Birding just present information that's new to me. I've been around the block so many times that most sort of basic bird information isn't all that new to me, mm-hmm. but I love articles that get me to think uh, in a new way. In the uh, forthcoming February issue of Birding, Elisa Yang uh, out in Los Angeles has an article that really uh, advances a totally new way of thinking about keystone species. Keystone species, that, that's an ecological concept. It's a, an organism that, you know, the, the whole community depends on it. But right. she, she kind of makes this um, more sort of like a human-centered, uh, anthropic version of the keystone species. And it, it's, it's a really neat, original idea. I've never encountered it before. Um, it's also an article with beautiful photos of uh, cactus wrens and uh, 
uh, uh, other specialty species. Uh, sorry, California coastal cactus runs another specialty species of, of, of uh, Southern California. But uh, an article that um, you know has some sort of eye-popping quality to it, but that also encourages me to think in a new way. So you know, follow directions, put your name on the top of the paper, <laughs> include your email address, and um, and and present content that is. Again, it doesn't have to be strikingly novel, but that you know advances a new way of looking at things, a, a different perspective, uh, maybe just a new information. I, I really want to see that for sure. Mm-hmm. Where do you think birding is going to go? Do you, do you have another seventeen years in you? <laughs> well, <laughs> seventeen years, we shall see. Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a question that I um, you know, I think about from time to time, but I also sort of uh, there's the saying I, I sort of kick the can down the road. You know. The, on the whole, I would say that over the past 17 years, and really over the past 50 years, the change in the magazine has been incremental. You know, mm-hmm. It's not as if there was some drastic change between 2009 and 2010. You can't point to anything like that. So there's a part of me that kind of safely and securely imagines that the change will be incremental. You know, Certainly, technology will continue to play a role, and I imagine that the uh, delivery of digital content will um, continue apace. But then there's this other part of me that looks at um, the history of science, the history of ideas, and you know this idea of these dramatic uh, uh, paradigm shifts from time to time, or you know, an evolutionary idea of um, uh, punctuated punctuated equilibrium. You know, there will be some drastic shift, and I can't anticipate what that is. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I, I haven't ruled out the possibility that at some point, you know, two years from now, five years from now, twenty years from now, there will be some drastic change. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I haven't ruled out that possibility. So my um, my simple Simple and safe answer is I expect continued incremental change, uh, reflecting you know the ongoing digital revolution, reflecting uh, changes in the birding community. But if you were to tell me, or if you and I were to get together two years from now, or five years from now, ten years from now, and uh, reflect on you know the the you know the the cosmic event of the year 2023 <laughs> or something like that, I, I wouldn't be totally surprised. One of the things that is, is very interesting about birding is the fact that, you know, a lot of that old content still has so much relevance. I mean, we're always getting asked by members to get copies of old articles. I mean, a lot of that stuff still matters, uh, which is something that not a lot of publications can say. Yeah, I appreciate your saying that. Uh, just in the uh, the most recently published December uh, 2018 issue of Birding, uh, y- you know, of course, I think many of our listeners do as well, that we reprinted in its entirety a volume zero, number zero of Birding from, from 1968, uh, in part sort of just as a, as a curiosity, but also because there are some really modern ideas in there as well. Birding certainly broke ground starting in the 1980s and accelerating the 1990s with uh, just, you know, really important new articles on you know, that the subject matter is sort of dated now, but articles on identifying stints and impedinax flycatchers mm. and, um, and and marsh sparrows uh, and, and so forth. And that content is still very, very relevant. I, I ought to say without uh, sort of uh, revealing everything here that uh, all of us at the ABA do intend to create a um, sort of like a bank or repository of um I, bird identification content uh, through the years. Um, that's um, a project for a rainy day. It's uh, just barely getting off the ground right now. But uh, you're absolutely right that there's sort of a a, a long-term clamor for uh, for older content in in Birding Magazine. Thanks, Ted. Ted is Ted Floyd is the editor of Birding Magazine, the ABA's flagship publication. He is also the ABA's resident historian and a <laughs> regular guest on this podcast. Uh, congrats on 100 issues, and you know we'll we'll probably talk again before the end of the year. Thanks very much. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it and the many free resources that the ABA provides for the birding community, the best way to do that is by joining the ABA. We have a number of membership options, including e-membership for those who are happy receiving their publications online rather than in the mail. You can get more information at aba.org slash join or aba.org slash e-member. Special shout out to, hold on, there's, there's a lot of them again. Gavin Anstey of Rossland, British Columbia, Sonia Mendoza of Socorro, New Mexico, Allison Sheehy of Kernville, California, Christopher and Susan Pete of Battle Creek, Michigan, the David and Jasmine Adams family with Davey, Charlie, Henry, and Samuel of Houston, Texas, Matthew DeFort of Seattle, Washington, Thomas Domer of Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, Kevin Mock of Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, John Nelson of New Orleans, Louisiana, Jaden Bowen of Iowa City, Iowa, and Doretta Remy of Woodville, Texas. Thank you all for joining or rejoining the ABA and thank you for noting the podcast as a reason for doing so you guys you guys are the best executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon with respect to Ted he thinks that the biggest mistake ever printed in Birding Magazine was the September 1974 issue uh, which was just the previous month's issue of Popular Mechanics printed in its entirety Technical production is by John Lowry. He knows that the biggest mistake he ever saw in Birding Magazine was an interview with the rock band Cream, published in April 1984. It reads very differently once you realize that the shag they're talking about is not the bird. Special thanks to Greg Addington for assembling this episode while John is in Thailand. He hasn't read a lot of Birding Magazines, but he did find the January 2016 issue in which we reveal that that year's ABA Bird of the Year is named Chad sort of odd. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They both pointed to the November 1979 issue of Birding Magazine, uh, in which we sent every member a Ziploc bag full of cutout letters and asked them all to assemble their own article about identifying Western Impinax flycatchers. Uh, that was a low point in the magazine's history. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at aba. We've been, we've been building this for 16 years, and we can finally announce it. I hope that you have kept every issue a birding magazine that Ted Floyd has edited because if you take them all and lay them out on a 10 by 10 grid and then like stand back, it may, you may need to stand way back. It will reveal a portrait of Ted Floyd sitting astride a Northern goshawk flying over the Pacific ocean towards Hawaii. Finally, finally it all pays off. You may have to squint a little questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.